0: And y'all give it up for Hannah. Thank you so much. Hey, well, like, um, like uh, we said, we're in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing our series tonight called Dwell, uh, Experiencing Life with God Wherever You Are. It's kind of the idea where we're going, what we're getting after Uh, Luke chapter 10 uh, has given us our our driving metaphor, the picture that's kind of shaping where we're going, the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus, where Jesus looks at Martha, who's busy with all of the things of life, kind of like all of us, frankly, are, right? That's a breathing human, anxious with many things in life. She's running all over the house, and uh, Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, what what are you doing? After Martha's asking for Mary's help and says, no, Martha, you don't get it, Mary has chosen the better thing. And then Jesus says, there's only one thing that's needed and it's to be with with me, it's to be with Jesus. So we're talking about what it looks like uh, to do that, to dwell with Jesus, to experience life with God wherever we we are. Um, So as we hop into Psalm chapter one, I want you to just imagine with me that you and your connection group were coming over to my house for a cookout. And and that like a week before you uh we'd have a good time by the way uh facts so you the week before you texted me and you said rudy i want some of those ribs that you talked about in week two like i want you to do i want i want some of them ribs at three two one like breakdown that you hit me with the ribs like let's have some ribs just so you know though uh i i have a peanut allergy uh and so when you're preparing the food just make sure that you don't have anything with peanuts in it or around it whatever and like i like heart the message or whatever the non-iPhone thing is. Um, and, then, and then, I don't know, like the two eyes, I don't, I don't know. Um, but, but like I, you, you come over and we're kicking in the backyard. You're, you're like crushing some ribs. We're watching the Packers beat the Rams. Like we're just enjoying all of that. And then I, I look at you and I'm like, oh, I have a surprise for you. And I, I run into my kitchen and I run back with a homemade peanut butter pie. Now, some of you said, mm, and others of you said nothing because you actually have a dietary restriction that could lead to you going into anaphylactic shock. And you're like, that's terrifying, right? Like, you're like, Rudy, like, you'd look at me and you'd be like, dude, okay, ribs, cool. Like, we were cooking salads, like, cool, like, all of that. But, 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 but what's, up? what's up with the pie? Like, didn't you read the text that I sent you? Like, you'd have just a moment when you were like, bro, like, where are you think you were like we we talked about this right on the front end and it's not quite the same um, but I think that sometimes we can have moments like that with God and we have moments like that with him in in his word I know there are moments when it can just feel difficult to know him to know like what he's like or to know what he likes or to know what he he doesn't like it can feel confusing to try to comprehend who who he is but like I just like, what if he's given us a way in which we can know him? What if he's chosen to help us in a unique, specific way by providing and preserving for us a means by which we can know who he is, what he's like, and what he likes? What if, per se, he's used dozens of individuals over like, hundreds and thousands of, of years in a period of time to write in a way that was honest to their culture and divinely inspired to help us know who he actually is? What if he's like, already sent that text and the question we're left with is, did we read what he said to us? Tonight, we're looking at the, the Bible. Specifically, as we roll with our series, Dwell, I want to talk about what it looks like to dwell in Scripture. And when I talk about that, some of you are like, Awesome. Like, I love that, that's one reaction. You're like, I'm in the book, I love the scripture. Rudy, challenge me tonight, help me to love the word of God more. And, and I, I love that, and I wanna do that tonight. I love that you love the word. Not that you worship the book, but that you worship the God that the book reveals to help us intake and dwell with him and, and, and be with him and see him. And my hope is that tonight that this would strengthen and challenge you as you continue to dwell in, in scripture. I also know maybe for some of you, if we're honest, um, I say we're talking about the Bible and you sink down a little bit and you get a little bit just internally ashamed because the Bible feels daunting or maybe it feels crushing. Like your story with Scripture is one of starts and stops. It feels marked by inconsistency. You feel like this shame of I've been around Christianity. I've followed Jesus for so long. Shouldn't I just get this by now? Like why do I have to keep coming back to this over and over? And tonight my hope is that this is just a really great help for you Uh, My friend Mark has this idea that he talks about called mastering the restart. That he's like, no matter where you are, no matter how long it's been, you can always master the restart. And maybe tonight will just be a restart for you. And then you can move back into practicing reading scripture in a fresh way. And then candidly, some of you, and I just want to hit this, like some of you might get angry that I'm talking about the Bible. Like you've had people use this beautiful book to manipulate you, to shame you, to harm you, to do something to you. People who claim that it is their book have treated you in ways that the God this scripture reveals never would have. And for you tonight, I want to be gentle and strong to you. Gentle in saying that I'm sorry. I genuinely wish that had never happened to you. And I'm sorry that it did. But strong to you by saying that the pain inflicted on you by someone does not disqualify the scripture from being good and beautiful and true, even if it was not presented to you as such. We're going to just set a framework on the text and then hop into Psalm chapter one. I've got a whole lecture that I do on this, but just to condense it, moving kind of fast through this, scripture is, you could write this in your notes, scripture is verbal plenary inspiration. That is to say that all of the words of this text, as we receive it in their original autographs, are inspired by God, breathed out by God. It wasn't written in English, but we do have honest English translations of the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic that the Bible was originally given in. It was Not written or even influenced by Western or European regions of the world but it is a book with origins in the global Middle East there is however no book that has more fully shaped the West than it has and the Bible has when honestly and properly treated formed people who follow Jesus in dramatic ways and I just want to say this the Bible that you're either reading on your phone that we've read out loud or maybe that you have on your lap came to you at an incredibly great cost It was not always the case that someone could just have their own copy of the Bible that they held, or maybe that they opened sometimes. It it, it was a, a rarity for so, so long. In fact, there's just some stories I want to tell you, just so you understand how precious it is that you have the Bible at all that you yourself personally can read. William Tyndale a reformed theologian, uh, longed to see the false teachings of his age die. So he translated the entirety of the Bible into English so the common person could read it. Prior to that, there was kind of this doctrine called sola Latina. It's this idea that a subsection of the church was saying it could only be really read in Latin, which isolated the power of interpretation to people who could translate Latin, which allowed them to basically tell people that the Bible meant whatever they wanted it to mean. It was an incredibly manipulative, power-soaked time. It's a whole different thing. The result of this, this man translating it into English was this. He was tied to a stake, choked to death, and burned. His final words were not, get me out of this fire. They were, Lord, open up the eyes of the king of England. He believed that the scriptures were authoritative and true and were therefore worthy of his trust and his life. Another group of people in France, um, 100,000 members of a group known as the Huguenots, 10,000 of them in France were murdered because, and I quote, they envisioned a Christianity where they could read the scripture for themselves, meditate on their meaning, and abide in the text. The very things that every single person in this room is free to do today. They died for that. They were killed, they believed the scriptures were authoritative and true, and were therefore worthy of their trust and their life. Let's pull it a little closer to our neck of the world. In the mid-1800s in America, there had been such wicked false teaching in some Southern churches where people twisted the Bible to try to prove that it approved chattel slavery which it's important to understand and clarify at no point in the scripture does it approve anything in the realm of chattel slave slave trade that was seen in the um, in the history of america here's what happened groups of churches all over but primarily in northern america saw and taught that faithfulness in following the scriptures looked like abolition that slave owning was a sin that required repentance in the form of immediate emancipation abolitionists driven in these movements around the churches demanded that churches Testified to slavery's inherent sinfulness by barring slave owners from their communion and fellowship. That meant in these churches, if you owned slaves, you weren't allowed to come in on Sundays. They took it that seriously. Did it cost them greatly? Sure, they did not care because they saw the heart of God in the scripture that all people were made in his image and were therefore deserving of full dignity. And before you think, well, everyone's always thought that. That is such an anemic understanding of the history of the world because everyone has not always thought that. The idea that everyone was made with image and worth and dignity and value is not something that has been inherent to the human rights experience of people across the ages of time. It is something that is shamelessly influenced by the scriptures in cultures across history. An honest reading of history reveals that there has always been a difference between people who claimed the scriptures and did wickedness and justice and those who followed the scriptures and did righteousness and pursued justice. So I don't have the time tonight. Sorry, I was, Okay. I guess I do have the time tonight. Um, but the scriptures are beautiful, formative, true, and good. And as we behold them, we find that our lives become more like them. Beautiful, more fully formed, marked by truth, and good in the eyes of God. So tonight, we're in Psalm 1. And I want to get after two questions. If you were to put a title at the top of your page, I would give you this line from the poet William Blake. Where he says that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. It's true for life, and it's certainly true for the Scripture. Um, our first question that we're going to deal with is around the idea of becoming. What happens when I dwell in Scripture? What is the result of me dwelling in Scripture? The second will deal with beholding. How do I actually do it? Okay? The Word doesn't do the work. The work won't get done. If you can't tell by now, I actually believe that. So Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man, the woman, the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. Blessed. First word of the first Psalm in the book of Psalms. Please do not let cultural co-opting of this word frame your idea of it. Having things does not equate to being blessed. Just ask people who have things. Um, being blessed is better than having more stuff. That definition is too simple. The word is intended to throw our minds to ideas of flourishing, peace, harmony, ease, rest, strength. Rested is the one who does not. At peace is the one who does not. Strong is the one who does not. It's intended to bring the mind of the reader back to the Garden of Eden in moments of our broken reality to bring our minds and lives back to the original sinless state. Blessed means to experience life in the way that it was always supposed to be. That word makes a really big promise at the offset of this psalm. It's saying that, hey, if you do what I'm going to say here, you will experience the blessed life. And then he follows by saying what not to do. The psalmist gives a negative outcome of becoming what you behold. The progression that he gives here of walking, standing, and sitting is intended to let us understand what happens as we become what we behold. When we behold the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers, that blessing is not experienced in those things. We do not become a people who experience what it means to be blessed. So you can get stuff and your life can look fine, but that pit in your stomach and in your soul, that thing, nothing else can fill you don't find the blessing of God when you walk sit stand and sit in this negative way but you are becoming something walk stand sit it's this progression of action alignment and abiding it is a negative formative progression it's saying that as you move into the way of the wicked the sinner the the scoffer that that will more fully mark you and who you are That to follow this progression of action, alignment, and abiding will cause you still to become what you behold. The advice, way, and identity of the wicked, sinful mocker will become your source of life. That which you are most dominated and shaped by, that which you dwell in, that which you behold, is simply what you will become. It just makes sense. It's logic. If you behold that, if your attention, life, affection is fixed on that, it will get inside of you. Time will never heal that. Time will only make it worse. It's a vicious cycle. So how does the cycle break? Right? How do we move out of this negative progression moving us away from the blessing of God? We enter into a positive progression of formation as we dwell in the scripture. Remember, this verse starts by saying, blessed is the one who does not. <laughs> so if this is a picture of those who aren't being blessed, aren't experiencing this flourishing... Well, what do we do then? What should we behold so that we become the people who this text says is blessed? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. All right, now we're cooking. I love this verse. You become what you behold. The one who is blessed delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Isn't that word delight, does that feel like a little odd to you? Like, the, can you imagine the idea of being like, hey, delight in the law of the road. Can, yeah, pretty great, right? Delight in the law of the belt line, right? Like, that's, you're kind of like, I'd rather not. 55 seems I'm the only person that's doing it. Okay, anyway, sorry, that's my own stuff. Okay, um, the word delight is interesting and should pique our interest. Why delight in the law? What do you think that delighting in the law will lead to flourishing? Isn't the law, like, restrictive, like, isn't it telling me what like, I can't do? Check this out. We are told to find pleasure, happiness, flourishing, blessing in the law of the Lord. This certainly being the explicit commandments of the Lord as we read them in the scriptures. But it's also the revelation and understanding of who God is through his law. That as we read his word, we come to understand who he is. In the same way that as you get around the people that you're around, as you hear them speak, you come to understand who they actually are. You have a revelation, and understanding of who they are by what they say. Think of it like this. It's, it's if a father looks at his children and says, you can't play with knives in the street and eat cake for every meal. Well, as a kid... It's what I wanted to do, all right? You, we had the same, yeah, exactly. Just saw that around, okay. I, I like, like you look at those moments and to, to, to us, we're like, well, yeah, duh, right? But to the child, that law seems extremely restrictive. But we understand that actually reveals the character of a good father who loves and cares about his children enough to protect them. Sometimes, as children, we just have to grow up and realize that the things that we wanted before were stupid, right? Like, in, sorry, in, in any case, It's not just the commands themselves that we are to delight in and to behold, but it's the one who gives those commands as we see his deep care for the ones that he's speaking to. Can I just give you one example of this? I love this. I'm going to pull it from Leviticus where Bible reading plans go to die. Um, As you read and you dig in, you find that the dense law in this text, by the way, there's no Bible that per word quotes God more directly than the book of Leviticus, so just that's a fun little fact. Um, there are actually some incredible displays of God's character on display. Here's just one of them. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, it's speaking to the specific condition of a woman to be able to come into the temple to bring a sacrifice to worship. Here's what Leviticus 12, 8 says. If she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may also take two turtle doves or two young pigeons and offer them as her sacrifice. Isn't that incredible? Don't we all just... We don't just all get that, right? Okay, so, okay, here's, right. Um, Here's what what God's saying. He's saying in his law, uh, this seems odd at first, yes, but sheep are expensive. Turtle doves and pigeons are not expensive. They're common. Here's what God's saying in his law. You could bring both or you can bring either. Here's what he's communicating through this moment about who he is. God doesn't price anybody out of worship. Whatever I have is enough to come to God with. Whether I have much and I can bring a sheep or whether I have little and I can just bring some pigeons, it's plenty because I'm actually bringing what I have to him. It's a beautiful reality that reveals that anybody can come to God with whatever they have, wherever they are, whoever they are. He makes a way for them to know him. Now, not through a sheep or a dove, but through his son, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Do you see how Looking at the law of delighting in this actually leads to this blessed life as we understand the character and nature of God. Yes, it starts as confusing, but if you don't take time to sit in what is confusing, you'll never find those diamonds in the text. You'll always rake leaves. You'll never mine for gold. And sometimes it's in those places that you beautifully see who God is and what he's like. This is just one example of delighting in a text. It's a revelation of God through his law that we delight in and come to see more of who he is. And delighting in the word is a part of this progressive, positive formation. The psalmist is helping us to understand the formative power of God. That as we delight in it and meditate on it, we are formed by it. Which gives rise to the question, what are we formed into? What does this blessed life look like? Let's read the rest of the psalm. Verses 3-6. through He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. We flip from the positive progression to the negative one. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist says that you can become a tree or you can become chaff. And it depends on what you behold. Depends on the progression that you're walking and that you're seeing. So first, let's look at the tree. The tree is a life that is not withering. It's not dying. Nothing's killing this tree. It's not malnourished. It's fulfilling its purpose. It's not bearing the wrong fruit at the wrong time, but bearing fruit in its season, doing what it should, when it should, as it should. And that's because the tree is a product of the source of the stream of water in this text. The, the word here for stream of water is actually a very specific form of irrigation which indicated like the water would get to exactly where it needed to get to to provide nourishment in the precise way that it was needed. We see something incredible here about dwelling in the scripture that this water that is the source of the tree's life is the equivalent of the word and the scripture of God for us in our lives. The vitality of this tree was not dependent on the tree trying harder to be a healthier tree or trying out five ways to be a better tree or trying to bear the right fruit at the right time in the right season all on its own the vitality of the life of the tree came from simply finding its source of nourishment vitality and life in the stream of water Our vitality, nourishment, and life comes as we enter into dwelling in the scripture. It gives us what we need so that we might dwell with him, so that we might experience life with God wherever we are, and so that we might follow after him in whatever season that we are in. The beauty of this portrait is the image of a man or a woman who's following the word of the Lord and prospering, flourishing, as they become what they behold in the scripture. So we see the tree, And then we see the chaff. Those who follow the way other than the way of Jesus are not like the tree. Those who follow something other than the scripture are not like the tree. They are the chaff. When the grain from the field was gathered in, it would be poured from a high place. And the grain that was good for eating would fall. And everything else that was kind of like the the flimsy outer coating of it would float away. And that was the chaff. The chaff was light, it was dead, it was useless, it was fundamentally different. Even a decaying tree had more hope and stability than the chaff did. But the psalmist doesn't even give that concession. The chaff is not like the tree in any respect. And the difference is the source, the stream. There is no water getting to the chaff. The scripture of God is the water, though, that gives vitality to the tree that is our lives. Notice how within these two portraits, there's only the tree and the chaff. There's no third option. Either we are trees in the psalmist's mind or we are chaff. There are clear divisions being drawn up by the psalmist. Either we find our flourishing, we live this blessed life that is provided for us by looking at the word of God to reveal who he is, or we try to concoct and create our own advice, our own path, our own way, our own identity. But no matter what, everyone is beholding something, which means everyone is becoming something, tree or chaff. And the desire of the psalmist is for us to be like the tree. This is what dwelling in scripture does. It's what it produces in us. We become more like the tree, vital, experiencing life, nourished, like all of these things that produce an experience that we would call blessed. But how do we do it? Like how do we actually behold? How do we enter into the formative progression of becoming through beholding the scripture? Go go look back at verse 2. As we look into the second question, the, the, the Hebrew word for that word meditate there is chaga. Can you guys say Chagah? Yeah, hit that Chah pretty hard. Chagah, right? Okay. Yeah. Greek last week, Hebrew this week. You guys are brilliant. Okay. Um, this word means to chew or to savor, to devour. It's a word that actually uses automatopoeia to communicate its definition. Like it's supposed to like sound like what you're doing. Like when you like chew really loudly. Any open mouth chewers in the in the room, don't don't Oh, you're a liar. I know it for a fact. I've sat across from so many of you. You're lying. Okay, I'm kidding. No, um, it's the Hebrew word haga, And it's this idea that as you're eating, you're like haggah, haggah, haga. You see, like it's actually supposed to evoke that reaction. It's supposed to be this like thing that you hear. And it's so unsettling as it reminds you that that's what it means to chew on the cud, to savor. It's this idea of a cow chewing the cud. You're locked in on it. You're attentive to it. You're focused on it. You're giving yourself over to it. I wanna just take the rest of our time to talk about two ways that you can actually do that with scripture. Now don't put the book in your mouth, but like how to actually like do that practices for you to meditate on the scripture. I'm gonna give one final thought and then I'm gonna take my seat. Two things you could write down. The first way for you to meditate on the scripture is by hearing the word in community. The original audience of Psalm 1 almost guaranteedly would not have read it they would have heard it read to them in an assembly really similar to this actually they would have heard it read out There is a long history of listening to scripture not just alone via an audio book or audio bible although that is great but to listen to the word taught and read and discussed in community This, by the way, is the beauty of connection groups. We hear the word in community, but that's not all we do. When you read it, you come to understand it, and then you start to do something with it. This is done, yes, individually, but it's also a communal practice. It's a key part of our connection groups. You get to gather to meditate on the word in this way, to talk, discuss, hear the word, discussed, read, talked about aloud, doing it in community together. You are currently meditating on the word of God simply by hearing it spoken, by hearing it taught. Just on Monday at our connection group, we met And I love this, we talked about the mercy of God. Look, I taught at Doxa on Sunday, and I needed to be there to hear other people talk about how they were seeing the mercy of God in their life, and I needed to have a space where I could talk about where I was seeing the mercy of God in my life. This is the beauty of hearing words and discussing in community. I love that our connection groups are based on the Bible that we hear when we gather, Here in the larger group and when we gather in the smaller group to talk about it and to apply it and to pray for one another around our hearing of the scripture. You meditate on the word by hearing it. But you also meditate on the word by reading the Bible on your own. This is just, this is very simple, but this is also where it starts. There's a really interesting study done in 2009 called The Power of 4, Arnold Cole and Priscilla, Priscilla Owijo, um, both PhDs, ran a study of 40,000 individuals uh, from the age of eight to 80. Um, and what they did was they simply asked them the question. They asked them a survey of questions about kind of their life, what their life was like, etc. And then they asked them how many days of the week they read the Bible. That was; those were the two questions that they asked. And they kind of used not reading the Bible at all as their control. So if you read the Bible one or two days a week, there was very little change from if you're reading the Bible zero days a week based on their study. If you read the Bible three days a week, there was a slight bump, but it wasn't anything significant. But they noticed at four days a week there was a massive differentiation in the life of the individual. You can go read this study, it's called Understanding the Bible Engagement Challenge. It's a weird name for it. You can search the power for read it on your own. But here's the stats. Feelings of being spiritually stagnant at reading the Bible four days a week or more dropped by 60%. Loneliness as an experience decreased by 30%. They tracked mental health increasing significantly as struggles with anxiety decreased significantly. They talked about the percentage of people who viewed pornography dropped by 61%. But these are some crazy stats. You are 228% more likely to share the gospel, 231% more likely to make disciples, 407% more likely to memorize scripture. Power of four. Meditation starts with us just reading the Bible. It starts with an open book. I wanna give you, if you wanna take these notes down, I wanna give you uh, the practice that I personally use right now for reading the scripture. It's not my own. I did not make this up. It's much older than I am. It's called Lectio Divina, um, and there's four movements to it. Read, reflect, respond, and rest. So the first one is Lectio, it's read. My first reading of a passage of Scripture is an opportunity to just get to know that Scripture passage. I'll often read it aloud, and I'll listen carefully for any words or phrases that seem to jump out at me. It's important to not force those things but just wait patiently to see what might be illuminated in the text as I read it to myself or as I read it out loud. Lectio, I read. Movement number two, miratio or or reflect. The second reading of the same passage, I focus on the points that I became aware of during the first reading. Often I'll just reread those few verses so I can carefully reflect on where God might be leading me as I'm reading the scripture. And then I'll reflect on what I believe God might be saying to me through his word. It actually helps at this point for me. I'll take some time to pray before this reading to ask God to make this focus clear. The third reading of the same text, it's time for me to respond in prayer. I would recommend, where's Ricky? Ricky and I were talking about Ricky and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Praying the paragraph, that as I read a paragraph of scripture, I then pause and pray from that paragraph. Just as it, whatever comes up as I'm reading that paragraph, I just pray from that. I, I pray in light of what's standing out in the scripture. It actually does this beautiful thing of bringing my Bible reading and prayer, which feel separate, together. And then finally, contemplatio, I rest after the final reading. I just spend a couple of minutes in silent contemplation. I sit quietly with three readings of the text on my mind, attentive to anything that might rise out of the silence in relation to the scripture. Maybe as I'm reading it and thinking about it, there's something that I know is coming up ahead in my day that I need to remember in this text. In those moments when my mind starts to wander around or get distracted, I just gently bring it back to stillness again. And I end there with the text filling my mind as I leave with it guiding my day it's just a really simple practice for how I read the Bible it's four readings of usually a shorter text or a chapter Uh, right now I'm reading Isaiah and then at the end of that I'm always going and reading the Sermon on the Mount I'm just doing that for a couple weeks until I move on or finish through Isaiah read reflect respond and rest there's so much more that you could do when it comes to get getting into like reading the Bible though Um, We actually have a little guide on the back table just called a dwell guide through the Bible that could take you into uh, several practices and has multiple reading plans in it, uh, different paces. You can go check that out and grab a copy of that for yourself after salt. Um, I love the Bible because of how it's helped me to see, know, and follow Jesus over and over again. I have my bible marked up but in reality my life is far more marked by my bible than my bible has been marked by me and one of the most compelling things that drives me to want to dwell in the scripture more and more is simply because jesus did (laughs) um it's a good enough reason and if i follow him it would make sense to go and do what what he himself did G.K. Beale says that Jesus directly quotes the scripture something like 78 times across the gospels, and even more than that, he makes allusions to the scripture. Jesus often gets defensive over the scripture. In Mark chapter 7, he points some people out and says, you are nullifying the word of God because you are holding on to your human traditions and neglecting scripture. In Luke 19, he gets mad when people are selling things uh, to try to make people purchase their way into worship. Uh, He flips those tables over and he quotes Isaiah 56 when he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations when the devil comes up and messes with Jesus in the wilderness and he quotes scripture out of context Jesus quotes scripture that he's memorized in context to refute them when John when Jesus prays in John chapter 17 for the believers that would come which by the way is for us his prayer is sanctify them Make them more like, more holy by your truth. Your word is truth. He prays for the word of God, the scriptures to form us as we behold them. That's the prayer of Jesus for the people of God today. He's all about the text. And there's this incredible moment in Luke chapter 24 after the resurrection of Jesus where he's going down a road to Emmaus. He runs into two of his disciples. You go and read it on your own. But that interaction with him, there's this moment inside of it where Jesus looks at them even though they don't recognize that it's him, and he starts to do this, verse 27 and Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus takes the scripture that they would know and that he knew and says, hey boys, I'm gonna pause right here in the middle of this road so that you can see how I am the story of all of that two reasons this is just so important first if there was anybody that could have used anything to communicate who Jesus was it would have been the resurrected Christ right he could have done a sign he could have done a miracle he could have done whatever he wanted and instead he chooses to use scripture if it's enough for Jesus guys it's got to be enough for us he could have done anything and he's like I'm going to use the scripture he knows that we too would be able to use the scripture But it also helps us understand the second reality. Jesus is not simply a part of the Bible. Remember, it says, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus isn't just a character that shows up for one part of the Bible. Jesus is the entirety of the story of the Bible. He is everywhere in the Bible. So we go back to our main idea, we become what we behold. If Jesus is all over the Bible, and as we behold the Bible, then we'll become more like Jesus because the Bible is all about him. If we become what we behold when we behold the Bible, we become what we behold, we become more like Jesus. One theologian said it like this, just as the shepherds went to the manger to see Christ, so too do we go to the Bible to see Christ. A couple years ago, uh, based on this idea, from John chapter 24, that verse, I, um, I went through and built a list based on that passage. Um, I've taken some influences for this and I've adjusted them for as I've seen them in the text, but I wrote in the front of my Bible how I've seen Jesus in each of the books of the 66 books that make up the Bible. Um, Logan, you can go ahead and come up now. I'm gonna just read this to you and close uh, and pray for us, but I want you to see how in every book of the bible jesus is there so don't worry about trying to write this down maybe just let this sit with you for just a second as we see that in genesis jesus is the word that created in exodus jesus is the passover lamb in leviticus jesus is the true high priest in numbers jesus is the water in the desert to quench our thirst in deuteronomy he is our deliverance in joshua he's the commander of the lord's army and judges, Jesus is the Lord of peace. In Ruth, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer here to bring his family to himself. In 1 Samuel, Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. In 2 Samuel, Jesus is the rock of salvation. In 1 Kings, Jesus is the builder of an eternal temple for us to dwell with him in. In 2 Kings, he is the reigning king of righteousness. In 1 Chronicles, he's the son of David who will come to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he's the eternal reigning king. In Ezra, he is the priest that's proclaiming in Nehemiah, he restores what is broken. In Esther, he is the protector of the people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he is our song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In Song of Songs, Jesus is our faithful love. In Isaiah, he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace, the suffering servant who would die for the sins of of the world, In Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he takes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's the fourth one with us in the furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband for his people. In Joel, he's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the one that delivers justice for the oppressed. In Obadiah, he's mighty to save. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea to be forgotten Forever and Nahum, he's the proclaimer of future world peace. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. And Haggai, he restores our worship when it's broken. In Zechariah, he's the Lord and King over all the earth. And in Malachi, he's the Son of Righteous who bring righteousness who brings healing. In Matthew, he is the Messiah who is King. In Mark, he is the Messiah who is Savior. In Luke, he's the Messiah who's the Deliverer. In John, he's the Messiah who is God in the flesh the very word of God himself in Acts he sends his spirit to empower us for mission in Romans he's the power of God to salvation and to unity in 1st Corinthians he's our resurrection in 2nd Corinthians he's the down payment of our salvation in Galatians he's our inheritance in Ephesians he joins us together as one family by his blood in Philippians he is our joy in Colossians he is supreme in 1st Thessalonians he's our comfort in 2nd Thessalonians He's the returning king. In 1 Timothy, he holds and gives to us a crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy, he is our helper. In Titus, he is our hope. In Philemon, he's our interceding benefactor. In Hebrews, he's our high priest and the radiance of God. In James, he's the great healer. In 1 Peter, he is our hope in pain. In 2 Peter, he is our restorer. In 1 John, he's our love and our light. In 2 John, he is the Christ. In 3 John, he is our prosperity, our hope, and our peace. In Jude, he is the Lord who is coming. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who will return to make all things new. If you want to see Jesus, you look at the book. You look at the Bible. You become what you behold. And as you behold him through the text, you we'll become more like him. We behold the Savior and become more satisfied in him. We become behold the Messiah and we become missional like him. We behold the Christ and create community like him. We behold Jesus and seek justice like him. We behold the good shepherd and care for others like him. We behold the merciful King and show mercy like him. We behold his grace and give grace like him. We behold him and we become more like him. We become like Jesus as we behold the beautiful story of Jesus in the Bible that tells us who he is. If you don't know who Jesus is, I want to tell you this clearly. And if you do, I want you to remember it and return to the Bible day and night to meditate on it. We, Salt Company, all of us were lost, hopeless, unrighteous, and in ruin. We were chaff. But in Christ, we are found, hopeful, righteous, and flourishing. He saves and he shapes by his gospel. He is the true tree of righteousness that was chopped down for us so that we might experience the blessing of salvation now and eternity so that we might experience the vitality of being a tree and not shaft. So you wanna become more like Jesus? You wanna see who Jesus is? You go to his word. You let your kingdom fall, his kingdom become great and you put more of yourself, you become more of who you already are in Christ and he becomes more satisfying than any other thing. So to that end, I just wanna pray for us and then we'll enter back into worship. So Father, help us to continue to see you through this beautiful, beautiful text. God, in parts of it that are difficult and hard for us to understand, would you give us patience to see to understand, to slow parts of it that so clearly show who you are. Would we continue over and over and over again to be a people who are marked by this reality? Jesus, you are good and beautiful and true. And through your text, we see that you are good and beautiful and true. For the person in here that doesn't know you, Father, I ask that you would draw them to yourself, that they would trust you as their Lord and savior for their sin. They would no longer run in the way of the wicked or the, the seed of the scoffer or the path of the mocker, any of those things, but would, would come to you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. For those in here who do know you, Father, would you reignite a passion, a desire for us to be a people who love your word, not simply to finish it, not simply to just get more of it, but to be formed and shaped by the reality of who you are as we read this text. Would we become what we Jesus name amen you can go ahead and stand here